you have these artists who proclaim this is a revolution and it's the great democratization of art and now it'll be inclusive every gender and every race will be on equal footing and you know you mint nfts and you can now support yourself creative sovereignty and all of this stuff is so lovely and utopian but i think there's a fine line between utopia and dystopia because they say all this and then uh you know christie's or sotheby's decides they're going to do a little a little auction a little dog and pony show and they come running like little bitches uh and they drop their revolution you know like rotten meat and so what that shows me is that for all their idealism and warm fuzzy talk about community and the revolution as soon as somebody waves a little bit of money in front of their face they they sort of conveniently forget about all that hello everyone welcome to the podcast floor is rising with host Sabretooth a professional NFT collector and Kizu a professional art critic on this podcast we talk deeply about the business of creating collecting and analyzing NFTs so if you are a creator or a collector of NFTs jump in the water is warm Hi everyone, welcome to an episode of Floor is Rising with us today, very special guest, Kevin Ebosch. He is basically an OG, I wouldn't even call him an OG NFT artist, he's an OG crypto artist. He's a uh, crypto art predates the existence of um, NFTs. Welcome to the show. Kevin, usually I start the show by asking people, how do they get into NFTs? But in this special segment, I'm going to ask, how did you actually get into crypto and crypto art? Okay, good question. Well, I've been practicing uh, as an artist with the intention of making art. That is to say that 32 or 33 years ago, I I started my formal practice as an artist. That, that moment where you actually tell others when they ask you, what do you do? You say, uh, I'm an artist. And my work, yes, I, I think it's fair to say my work always, be cliche about it, was at that intersection of art and technology. And I say that because even my early photographic work I always was sort of, you know, hyper aware that my ability to create and express myself as a photographer was through this, with the use of this machine, you know, and then the technology, especially with digital photography, that afforded me all the possibilities uh, to play with and uh, manipulate uh, digital imagery. I was also interested in uh, artificial intelligence. I was interested in cryptography. So right, when blockchain started to, uh, you know, emerge, and I think the first time I played with it would have been in 2000 and well, probably 2011. But then in 2012, I was approached by some people who knew that I was working with technology and with cryptography uh, in particular. I had done a conceptual art project. I had called it QuickDesk. It sort of looked like a startup, tech startup, but it was a, an anonymous portal uh, through which people could communicate without authenticating and I mean, really impossible to source a message back to its creator. And it was impractical in the sense that there was a lot of friction and, you know, probably more than most people would, would want to deal with. But for those who were really concerned with privacy, it was pretty cool. Anyway, after getting a lot of publicity around that art project, and that was around early 2013, I was approached by a number of Bitcoin wallet companies who wanted to know if some of the technology I was playing with as an artist, if they could use some of that technology, if I could, if I could integrate it with their app. So 
I was forced at that point to do a real deep dive into you know blockchain tech. And after those two weeks, I sort of knew a lot more than I had ever known and had more questions than ever. And ultimately, because I sort of was obsessing on edge cases where it all broke down, and I, I, even then I was thinking about well, what happens when quantum computing comes and it all gets shot to hell. And, and so I just said, you know what, I'm not ready to take this on. And I, I didn't sort of need to. And, and that was a real like kind of tech job that wasn't that had nothing to do with art. So I, I didn't get involved with that. But what I did do was, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about how, a, you know, a public and a private key essentially were this remarkable repository, repository for potential value. And I had already been playing with alphanumerics as proxies for distilling emotional value. And this just got my mind racing. And and then, I mean, I guess, I don't know how pertinent it is, but a friend of mine and myself, we were uh, kind of cutting our teeth on, on Dogecoin back then, just, you know, we're mining it. And that's, you know, how I kind of learned, learned how that all worked. That's just sort of anecdotal. I don't, don't really, you know, manifest in anything later, but I just... You know, I, I think the first project, the first project, like the first art project, I did was 2013. I collated 500 uh, public and private Bitcoin keys in a in a book, and I called it Bank. Um, just a conceptual piece that because this, this this idea that there was all this value that could be stored in a little book, and the book was essentially a bank. In fact. I've done other pieces over the years that have to do with the concept of a bank. If you looked at what a bank is, really, it's, it, it, it's at its core, it, it can be simplified into something that's, uh, well, either secure or even, you know, insecure. But yeah, so that was the first thing. And then I, you know, I played around and I was, most of what I was doing back then was, again, kind of using wallets as procs. I was using actually the wallets themselves as proxies for other things I was working on. And then I could move, you know, coins in and out in, in certain patterns that were generated, you know, through other processes. But it wasn't really until 2018, January, that I think I really, you know, kind of made a made a statement um, of, 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 of massive proportions with uh, Ayana coin. It's when I tokenized myself in the form of uh, 10 million pieces of virtual art, also known as ERC-20 tokens, each divisible to 18 decimal places. Um, and I wanted that to be, I wanted that to be really connected to me. Uh, and the reason I, just, sorry, I'm kind of jumping around, but the reason I wanted, uh, I started this I Am A Coin project was I had gone through a couple of years of feeling commodified as an artist. I had a lot of attention come my way, in particular because a, a photograph I had taken of a potato sold for a, a very large sum of money. And it, it actually took a couple of years for it to hit the news. And when it did, it just went crazy. And, and the only thing people wanted to talk to me about or were interested about was the financial value of my work as opposed to the artistic value. So I thought, okay, if I'm going to be commodified, I'm going to take control of this narr narrative in a, in a, in a, in a um, playful way and create this coin. I am a coin. And these were meant to be pieces of me. And so there was the virtual work, like I said, the 10 million uh, artworks. And then I wanted there to be a physical component so that I could kind of meaningfully believe that I something of me were part of these coins. I took the contract address that's generated when you deploy a, a contract to the Ethereum blockchain. I had a rubber stamp made and I made some physical works on paper with my blood uh, drawn by my wife, who's a, who's a doctor. And so... My logic was the physical, it was interesting, I thought, because the physical artworks with the blood and the contract address could not have had a meaningful existence were it not for the creation of the virtual work. 
And I just thought that was really cool. So if you had any doubt about the value, sort of intrinsic value of the virtual, well, understand that the physical couldn't have come into existence were it not for the virtual. And so in that sense, I felt that like somehow these really were pieces of me. And from that point on, I think it's fair to say things have not been the same for, you know, whatever it is, four years. I want to talk about sort of bank your, your 2013 work. Um, can you remember like, you know, because it was an edition of 50 that you kind of That's right. published. Can you remember like after, you know, that piece came out, like what happened yeah. to those edition of 50? What was, what was the reception to that project at that time? No. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, like, I mean, it's not like I promoted it. I didn't go on tour. There was, you right. know, I gave some, to, I gave some to friends. I kept most of them. Couple, anyway, it doesn't really matter. But a couple got, I remember a couple got lost, but not, nobody cared. Nobody cared. I mean, really anything crypto back then was just, was just alien talk to most people, right. even most tech people. That, that That's always the part that I found, found funny. And, even today, we're just starting to see mainstream, you know, tech bros and, and devs, you know, move into crypto. It's always been this weird alien thing. But back then, all the interest around it was, you know, about can someone make money off it? You know, yeah, sure, there were idealists who were thinking about how it's going to democratize society and finance. And, but for the most part, people were just interested in how they're going to make money from it. So then it's like, why is this artist playing? Or it just... I don't know. It's so weird. Like now they're, they're with all this time and the average person has some exposure to the idea of, of the blockchain and art. It's, it's all very natural, but no, back then just nobody cared. I mean, I'm not, I didn't even really care myself. <laughs> now that I think about it, it's just as an artist, what do I do? I make art, I play. So like, there's a lot of stuff, you know, I could probably pull out a bunch of things using various technologies that, you know, didn't make news uh, and therefore are, were not deemed significant. It's just and, that because of crypto, that stuff is. But when did this project of yours become rediscovered? Was it was it during sort of the 2018 period when you came back into crypto? Yeah. Was it later than that? Yeah. It, like like when when wait, wait, which which project are you talking bank, about? Bank bank like the very first bank. Oh, project. it's not rediscovered. Like yeah, no one ever talks about it. Okay, no one really. Not no one even today talks about this project. Okay, no, that's, that's, no. I mean, yeah, it's, it's it gets referenced here and there, but I have a show coming up. I'm sure it'll copy of it will be there on display but no, okay. nobody cares because in fact most of my early crypto art especially the physical stuff probably mm -hmm. nobody cares about because uh they can't you know can't buy it on OpenSea. <laughs> Kevin, can i tell no, it's, not, it's um, not an nft huh in the contemporary art world what what has been the main thrust of this kind of desire to trace the history of nft and crypto art that world tends to latch onto a very different brand, I would say, or aesthetic of crypto art from mm -hmm. what, what do you see on OpenSea, obviously. So I was wondering, right. as someone who's worked on both sides of that border, if you could give us a color into what you think are the main uh, patterns in the differences in behavior and case. There are a few components to it. The first thing that I think about is how, for so many decades, generative art and digital art, computer art was marginalized. And it was never really part of the part of the so-called traditional art world. And there are different theories about why, and I'm happy to share some of my own ideas on that. I think that there are many of the practitioners of AI art and other forms of generative art and 
they were tech people who, this is not, and and there's no way to say they weren't artists, but they were tech people first that were expressing themselves artistically. In some cases, they were not making work with the intention of being an artist. I know this because, for instance, I just uh, spent a couple of days with Herbert Franker in Austria, one of the sort of godfathers of, of uh, generative art and, and media art. And he um, he said that it was a few years into his practice before someone said to him, you know, this stuff you're doing, this work you're doing could have implications in the art world. And that person said, I think you should just drop everything and become an artist. <laughs> and so he and so he did. But I think a lot of the practitioners whose work you see in museums like ZKM, Centrum for Kunst and Media in Karlsruhe, Germany, these are fantastic museums full of the work of fantastic artists. But some of these artists were not particularly prolific either. You know, they didn't really put out a lot of work or maybe they only produced for a short period of time. Not to be confused with the likes of Herbert Franker or Vera Molnar or Gottfried Jaeger. They were prolific. But there were only a few of them that were. And then they spoke a language that the traditional art world didn't understand because they spoke in tech and they they spoke like academics. And I talk about this even today with contemporary generative practitioners. And I say, or they'll come to me sometimes and ask me questions about my work and how I made it. And I realize that behind their questions, it's really, there's more to it than it appears at first. There's almost like a kind of a battle. It's like kind of a an academic battle to see who who has the better algorithm or whose algorithm is more bulletproof or or who's using a more novel instance of some piece of tech or who's actually innovative. And when I'm confronted with this, which I am, I love saying this. I, I say, are you trying to win a Nobel Prize? Or are you trying to win make art? I said, I'm trying to make art. And you know, I use tech. I use you know all the fancy tools, and I, my my knowledge of tech goes deep. But first and foremost, I'm an artist, so I am not trying to impress. Now, I spoke with Mario Klingman uh, just the other day uh, in Lisbon about uh, about this very matter, and he confessed that he is very interested in impressing people with the tech, and that's fine. It's not not that it's wrong, and he's also an artist, and that's great. So imagine now that you have a whole scene that is not talking the language of emotional value. They're talking the language of them trying to impress with you know, savvy coding. And the art world just doesn't know how to plug into that. So that's the first problem, is this disconnect. And then we bring it up to you know, today. I think what you're asking is, you know, what type of work are the traditional institutions interested in and why are they interested in it? Well, let's just cut to it. It's money, first of all. They wouldn't even be looking at this if there weren't headlines, you know, that people were raking in millions and that there are billion dollars worth of transactions a month on OpenSea, you know, they wouldn't even be looking at it. OK, OK, fair enough. That's their their gateway reality. And and uh, and so then they start to look and they don't know what they're looking at. They're like, wait a second. They, they, see that I think another issue that persists that doesn't serve digital artists or the platforms is the conflation of everything that one could uh, ascribe the nomenclature of crypto art to. You've got natively digital work that's being sold as NFTs. You've got another track of work that came up. They were meme, it was memes that 
are being sold as NFTs. You've got the vintage memes, you've got, you know, neo memes. You've got uh, artists who are painting Ethereum logos with oil and then taking photos. Those end up as NFTs. And so, so one, I, you know, people throw around the word crypto art all the time. And I like to say it means different things to different people. I use blockchain as a method. I use cryptography as a method. And that's why I don't mind the term crypto art. Someone else might reference the crypto zeitgeist thematically in their work. So they're a crypto artist. And then someone else just, you know, uses blockchain technology as a delivery me mechanism. And that's enough for them to call themselves a crypto artist. I'm not going to. I, I used to argue about these things. I, I don't have the energy to anymore. So uh, you can call yourself what you like. But imagine now you're a gallerist from the so-called traditional art world and you, you dive in and you take a look and you just feel like, what the hell is going on? They're focused. There's nowhere for them to focus, right? But now this kind of narrative is sort of, I'm taking you from like 2018 to present. Things are starting to clarify a little bit, I think, in the, especially in the last year, especially, well, especially since, you know, the money really started flowing in since last March. They, they've decided to, you know, spend spend some more time and maybe hire some people to help surface the art that, you know, might resonate with them. So some are all some understand the cultural significance of, of memes and they're all about that. Others relate, you know, more to, uh, you know, gener generative uh, art, the kind you see on, uh, on art blocks or on uh, FX hash. Uh, and then others like work that by artists who are coming from a familiar perspective, they speak the same language. This doesn't mean to say that they were successful pre-crypto art. It just means that there's something that feels familiar enough to them that they can get up to speed and in good conscience, uh, show this work to their their collector base. I think we might look back on this time as like a time where art, historically speaking, there was a struggle, right? So we have the art people and the tech people, and they both wanted the kind of historical prerogative to be to say that, okay, we were the ones that, you know, really got to the heart of the issues of this thing that we call crypto NFT art. And there are people who can say, oh, you know, it's people like Robert Frank and, and his contemporaries that, you know, really laid the... Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the foundations for that. And mm -hmm. then the, the, the so-called tech people on the other side, I would say, well, that's something else. You know, it, it belongs to this dusty chapter of art history that, you know, sure, they, they were working with some of the same media and, and, you know, the platforms were similar. The concerns were somewhat similar. The formal issues were, you know, somewhat parallel. So that there's that. And then you also mentioned the fact that the terminology thing, that there's very little consensus about what crypto and NFT art means in the first place. For you, you said it's a methodology, you work with the blockchain and cryptography. And for many, many, many others, as we know, it, it's really just the idea that it points to something else. Are we going to see the chips fall more in the lap of the so-called traditional art world in, in the sense that there's going to be maybe a, a taking back of that territory and they're going to have a more historical voice that will be the one that ends up defining these terms that we throw around so loosely? Or do you think that the way things are going, it's really going to be the crypto bros all the way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with almost everything you said there. I probably should just note that I don't think there has been acceptance yet by the traditional art world of the so you know the pioneers like Franca 
it's starting to happen now. It's starting to happen now by some institutions. Uh, before that, like 10 years ago, sure, ZKM did a show of Franco, but you know, they're a tech art museum, they're a media museum. That's yet to, to happen. And I think the answer to the question is, if there is money to be made with all of this, then those with money and in power positions will, will control you know, the narrative, the shows, the, the media, and the marketplace. There will be a handful of artists, most likely, that the contemporary art world cozies up to because, uh, you know, for whatever reason, probably uh, some critical analysis and or other ingredients like, you know, everything from, well, you know, complicity between <laughs> institutions in trying to uh, pump up someone's market. That That's that's nothing, you know, that's not new. The, the, the kind of shenanigans we see in, in, in NFTs, uh, that's, that's just stuff that's gone on in market manipulation. That's stuff that's gone on. Uh, well, well documented in the traditional art world. It's just kind of turbocharged by crypto. Um, I think uh, it just remains to be seen if there's if there's a market there. Then you know, I don't think it's about crypto bros. But I mean, do crypto bros run the show now? I'm not so sure. I know that as soon as you know, you have these artists who proclaim this is a revolution and it's the great democratization of art, and now it'll be inclusive. Every gender and every race will be on equal footing, and you know, uh, you know, you mint NFTs, and you can now support yourself, creative sovereignty, and all of this stuff is so lovely and utopian. But I think there's a fine line between utopia and dystopia because they say all this, and then uh, you know, Christie's or Sotheby's decides they're going to do a little, a little auction, a little dog and pony show, and they come running like little bitches. Uh, and they drop their, revolu their revolution, uh, you know, like rotten meat. And so what that shows me is that for all their idealism and, and warm, fuzzy talk about community and the revolution, uh, as soon as, you know, as soon as somebody waves a little bit of money in front of their face, they, they sort of conveniently forget about all that. I'm, I'm generalizing. It's not everybody, but I'm seeing a lot of that. And, uh, you know, uh, it, doesn't <laughs> it doesn't bother me. I just think it needs to be said. That's all. I wonder what you make of, you know, a number of the more prominent art movements self-proclaimed as well, because obviously the exponents are the most fervent supporters of their own art. And then it's all over Twitter and, and Discord and, and things like that. Take something like, like, you know, the trash art movement, which I think when it first came out, one of the things that struck me was that there was, because of the disconnect that we've talked about, just the term trash art has a lot of overlap with similar movements that work with found objects, for example, in the early 20th century, things like that. And then, of course, if you if you do a more associative kind of exercise, you, you think of people like Rauschenberg and his combines and literally picked up trash and mm -hmm. put them together, right, in, in assemblages. So to me, that was a little jarring because I think because it's <laughs> unlikely, I would, I would say, that these artists were, first of all, aware uh, of the kind of lineage or history of the term and its associations. But I guess it didn't quite register or matter because obviously their audience also probably, th these things weren't top of mind for them. Could you say something to that effect of, yeah. you know, similar movements where it struck you as, as incredibly, you know, kind of, well, not willfully ignorant, I guess, but because there's, there's certain blind spots 
that you yeah. found worrying or like cognitively just mm-hmm. very sure. you know difficult to to accept i guess yeah well let's get something straight you're an art elitist and i know this because i probably have a little bit of that in my in me myself but let's let's address trash art so rob ness is a, is a lovely guy i've had some interactions with him yeah when i saw that when it first emerged the concept of trash art i think it was himself and uh max osiris and a couple others I thought it was, we know historically that the art world loves a movement, okay? There's power, there's power in numbers. And if you can identify something with some velocity and synchronicity and, and, and call it a movement, that can validate individual artists, you know, tremendously. But like you say, and, and it's not just for, for those guys, but, you know, a lot of artists who are, are working in NFTs and maybe weren't maybe even identifying as artists uh, pre-crypto, it's clear to me that there is a lack uh, amongst many of understanding where they understand their practice uh, to fit within the context of a great tradition of making art uh, for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And that can manifest in ways that <laughs> that we find amusing, perhaps, when everything you know looks like Basquiat or Warhol, uh, because those are the only two artists that perhaps a number of, of people know. And like you say, the collectors, too, they're sort of in the dark, too, because they don't really have a sense either of how significant, insignificant, derivative, not derivative, a given piece of work is. So it's almost like an alternate universe. It's a parallel universe, which, I mean, I, I, it's not like I'm sitting back like, ha, 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 look at you uh, savages. You know, it's not like that. It's, it's actually really interesting. I talk about this a lot with, with, with friends. Uh, I mean, what can you say? It's, uh, I'm not going to punish somebody for being naive or, or ignorant. And it is ignorance. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I've also seen artists who start off uh, ignorant and take it upon themselves after a few months of uh, identifying as an artist to say, you know, I need to kind of dig into this a bit and see who came before me and and understand, have I inadvertently copied someone or referenced their work and, and why and how did this even enter my consciousness? So, I mean, I'm particularly amused. I'm amused that makes me really sound like a believe but it is amusement. I'm amused when I see artists, uh, you know, remix something or like you say, you know, use a found object and and they think like, you know, Ooh, look at me. I'm so punk rock. Nobody ever did this. It's like, come on, get over yourself. It's like it was done multiple times decades ago. It's not new. And it's kind of a shame that you don't know that. But whatever, you know, that, that's the way it is. And it's the same in the, with, the, with the generative art. I don't even dig into it. I don't want to, I'm certainly not naming names, but you know, you look at a lot of stuff on art blocks. And look, I'll throw myself in there too. You know, you can look at my work as well. And, you know, there'll be reference, there'll be things that, you realize whether it's a you know uh, thematically or compositionally or a color schema or it could be anything but so or, but stuff that was done in the fifties and sixties. You go to ZKM, the ZKM, the, the museum in Karlsruhe. I know that it was sort of a nod to it, but and I don't want to name names. I'm not going to name names, but but there's work that is wildly successful, and I think if the collectors were even to know, like, listen, it's this was done. 40, 50 years ago, even there's machine work that's derived from machine learning. Stuff was done 40, 50 years ago. looks, uh, you know, very similar. And the only difference is now it's available by another person and it's being sold on, a, on an NFT, as an NFT. So, yeah, I mean, I have noticed this as well, as you have. 
and uh, I'm uh, you know amused by this parallel reality. Kevin, it's it's just it's just so um, entertaining actually just listening to you. I want okay. to talk about your two projects, Sun Signals and also One 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 One, and they're both drops that are over a thousand sort of edition sizes, and they're sort of larger edition sort of projects, sort of crypto art slash NFT projects. In contrast to, I guess, some of your earlier even sort of crypto artworks, which are smaller edition sizes, and certainly traditional sort of works, which are you know, either one-on-ones or smaller edition sizes. And what's been your experience with those projects and especially having your works in a lot of characters, a lot of collectors who I, I think I'm correct to say have a lot of expectations on you. Hmm. Um, what's that been? Okay, so 11.11 was the first big NFT project that I did. So for me, they're, they're all one-of-ones. Uh, this is, just to be clear, and then like, and I don't know if anyone thinks this has never been brought up, but let's just make it clear. This is not a click a button and it generates 1111 things. I worked on every single one of those. Okay. Even those that, you know, look maybe simpler than some of the other ones, every single one of them got my attention. These purely generative, you know, click and, you know, you mint as many as you want sort of projects, not to disparage them, just, just making it clear that that's, it's a very different type of, of, of work. As are the sun signals, uh, and just to be clear, also sun signals were a drop uh, that I, I gave to my existing collectors of eleven uh, eleven, um, not because it was part of any roadmap or you know, was, or because people demanded free art. It was just something I, I wanted to do, and when I did it, I feel like I don't think there were a lot of people doing that. Maybe uh, CryptoPunks gave away me bits around that same time, but aside from that, I don't think anybody had bestowed like a, a gift to their uh to their collector base and probably i wouldn't have done it uh, were it not for the fact that i think at the time i only had about 250 collectors across the 1111 uh, pieces uh, which is now up to about i think 385 so it was manageable <clears throat> i wasn't you know this I, I didn't have a nice you know cute website where you could just go and collect your your free thing. I, I had to, it was just all very manual. Everything for me has been manual. <laughs> it's been, it's been, the 1111, I didn't get into it. People certainly have more difficult uh, jobs, but uh, it, it almost killed me the amount of work I put into that project. Just long hours, not sleeping uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. But um, that was uh, a very satisfying project. Uh, it was well received. It was in, Mar- I, I think the date was March 23rd, uh, uh, 2021. And I, you know, they, they all, they all went, I, I forget, was it an auction or did I, they were auctioned. Yeah, they were auctioned. There was also like, there were a lot of people contacting me like, you know, well, why did you, uh, why'd you release on OpenSea an artist of your stature? You should have been on super rare. <laughs> one of, you know, it was, <laughs> well, one, I don't care. Like it's not something I, I really been too concerned about. And it, it really just came down to, I wanted my images and metadata on Arweave rather than IPFS and no other platform uh, could offer that. No other platform was going to accept my contract that I had created and OpenSea, even though they were in a real growth spurt, I think, and were a little underwater with respect to their dev team, um, they worked with me to kind of hack together a version of my contract with a contract they were working on in the future the our weave team and we all made it happen and that was they were the only ones who uh i, I could do a project of this size 
uh, with. And, you know, you, you I'm, I'm working on something right now with all my collectors of 1111 did a, a time stamp thing last November 11th. And, I've, and all my collect whoever had one of my works or more, then we're doing this thing called an evolution. And, and, <laughs> and again, I kind of wish I weren't doing it because with 385, roughly 385 people, I, I am meeting with them uh, and working with them on new work, very personal. I don't know if any artist has ever done this before, reach out to all their collectors to collaborate, but it's taking up way too much of my time. It's very satisfying though. And so you had mentioned about demands of collectors. I don't have that. I, I know what you're talking about because I know people who do. Uh, you know, Kenny Schachter has his Crypto Mutts project and, and he's got a Discord, which you'll never see me in Discord, but he's in there and they're screaming at him, you know, what can you do to pump the price? Uh, when are we going to get something free? And, you know, um, I... <laughs> You know, I, maybe there are one or two people who one maybe really only like one or two that have said like, "Are you going to do any? You know, where, where's the, where, is there any more free art? You know, sort of thing." And I'm just like, "No, I, I don't. I don't know. Maybe there is. Maybe there isn't." But I haven't had anybody talk to me about you're going to do something to hype the price or manipulate the market. Um, and I and I think I know why. I think I know why. I think, and, and, and it's another reason, uh, yeah, the market is soft now and all that, but I think another reason why there's not a lot of like activity across that project at the moment is many of my collectors are, I, I, I know many of them, they are, you know, extremely successful collectors, many in from the world of crypto, they're not thinking about, they, they buy something they're never selling, they're not buying as an investment. I think those who wanted to buy as an investment or flip, they've already done that. I mean, the new people come in, I guess, and buy art. You know, this is, I guess, the, not the most difficult thing, but the most challenging thing for me was just to sit back and accept that I would have to come face or, be, or I would have to watch my work sort of being commodified, which some people love. They're like, then they're, yeah, yeah, sell, flip, resell, secondary royalties, make money, make money. I'm not so, I'm really not so worried about that. You know, I like to know that the work is in good hands and, you know, people are finding enjoyment out of it. And, uh, but yeah, I've been, I've been fortunate, I guess, that I don't have people bugging me with, with that kind of stuff. And, you know, people, if, 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 if somebody wants to, if, if somebody did ask me that, I know what my, I've thought about it. My answer would be like, you know, if they say, you know, and they do, they, they ask me to, well, there are a few people that want me to start a discord. And why else would you want to start a discord than if you're going to, I don't know, some kind of group strategy to to pump something i'm like if you want to do that do it yourself you know go you know find other like collectors and you can you can do that i don't have to be part of it i don't have time i've got a family i've got obligations you know normal adult obligations i don't have time to sit there four hours a day dealing with the people on the discord so i think i think you kind of create your own reality in this space and and i think some people create complications for themselves that they don't need to buy buying in to this bullshit notion that every art project has to have a roadmap and utility and discord and all these all this baggage that is just not for me our traditional last question for all our guests has been who is your favorite artist let's turn that around a bit um okay about you know an artist that you think is severely and like criminally uh, underrated mm -hmm. Well, let's keep it narrow. We'll keep a narrow focus. We'll say in the uh, we'll say in the in the sort of crypto sphere. Just keep it on top, you know, theme for the for the podcast. 
I'm a big fan of Rhea Myers. Rhea Myers uh, is a great artist, thinker. She doesn't have an awful lot of work out there. I mean, she, she writes a lot. She's not, a, you know, doesn't have big collections of NFTs floating around, but she's a serious artist who I guess I also have an affinity for what she does because at the time that I started looking uh, at ways to explore blockchain as a method and thought that I was probably the only one, I did a little bit of digging and I found her. And I realized she was across the, the world. And I thought, like, that's really cool. So, okay. So, and then I, and then I saw that there were others too, and like Simon Denny. And, but yeah, Rhea, I think, um, is, is a great thinker, uh, a real asset uh, in the crypto space, probably a bit too intellectual for the, for the average, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, lighthearted collector. But, uh, and and someone else who's, you know, I, I I'm not even sure. I, I guess I, I think he's an artist. I'm, I think he I think he identifies as an artist to some extent. Is uh, Simon uh, de la Rubia, uh, who was an ETH Ethereum uh, like a Solidity developer. I think he worked for Consensus for a while, but he's done some really interesting work uh, too. And I like I like I like the artists. I like conceptual artists in the crypto space who who really think of the philosophical implications of this technology and through their work challenge us to, you know, look at our own value systems uh, a little closer. Kevin, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Definitely one of my most enjoyable interviews. <laughs> I was kind of like laughing, <laughs> laughing through basically half your answers um, in like a good way. Um, so so I, I definitely appreciate that you, you kind of took the time to, to do, do this podcast and uh, thank you for, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floor is Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us or send us a question. Just send us a DM at Floor is Rising.